Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So five months ago, which admittedly feels like five years ago, maybe five decades ago, um, I preached this very passage uh, just as rumors of uh, coronavirus's impact had begun to spread and there was talk that we might have to shut down. Um, And the last sermon I preached before we did shut down um, was this passage. And... um, Like you, I never, ever could imagine uh, that it'd be five months uh, before we would return to Acts. But such has been the nature of um, our life this this year. Um, If I was going to pick up where we left off in our Acts series, then it would actually be verse 9. I have preached... Uh, verses 1 through 8 already, and I'm, I am assuming you guys listen so intently, you remember everything about that sermon, um, so you'll have to bear with me for repeating a little bit of it today, but, but I have changed it, I have rewritten it, um, and there's a reason why. Uh, not only is this passage a, 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 um, a really important transition point in the book of Acts um, that, we, that we need to revisit for context's sake going forward, uh, the passage speaks also, um, and this is more so the reason why I felt compelled to, to, to uh, revisit it, is that the passage speaks so well to where we find ourselves uh, five months later after I preached it originally. I do remember uh, when I preached this passage in March, and I remember that I had to work hard in the sermon to help us see how we relate to uh, the breadth of persecution that we see in the passage, how we in comfortable America are able to relate to that. And, and I, I had to help us see that. Um, but now, after five months of what can only be labeled as just cultural unraveling, I think we are uniquely prepared and needy for the message that we find in this passage It's not the pandemic I'm talking about here. Um, In many ways, I think we've come to terms with that. It's annoying. We want it to be over. Um, But it's not the pandemic anymore. It's It's the after effects, the ripple effects of the pandemic. Because the pandemic, what it has done, of course, it's threatened our health, but it has also stripped us of normalcy, um, school, work, community, sports, theaters, concerts, entertainment, travel, and just the simple everyday conveniences of life that we take for granted. 
it seems to me that it has stripped all of that away, which has brought things to the surface that were previously suppressed. It hasn't changed us as much, I would argue, is it has revealed who we truly are. That which was so easily ignored by the distractions of American excess has been set free. And what has emerged is, I think, our truest cultural identity. And I think this has significant implications for the American church, for American Christianity. What has become painfully obvious is that our culture has, for the most part, moved on from Christianity. Nothing reveals where a culture places its identity, its hope, its trust more than a cultural crisis. And in past uh, crises of culture in our, in our world, um, it has led to us recommitting ourselves to our religious foundations. People return to church. People return to God. And this has felt very different. This crisis is showing us that not only has our culture moved on, from the worldview of its origin, it looks upon that worldview with shame and even contempt. For years now, I have been arguing, and if you're a member of TCPC or you've been attending for for any amount of time, I have been arguing that we need to accept what has become painfully obvious in Western Europe and is obvious here, that we have transitioned into a post-Christian culture. I preached an entire sermon series from 1 Peter to hammer that home and help us reimagine what it looks like to do life as exiles, not as those in power, but those in exile. But now, I don't think I have to make that argument. It is obvious to anyone willing to see it. All that to say, I can't think of a more appropriate occasion to revisit this passage when persecution is unleashed on the early church. I think we are ready for that where we find ourselves right now. Because what we will find is not only a much needed dose of perspective, which we desperately need, but dare I even say encouragement. May I even suggest optimism is possible for where we find ourselves. If we evaluate current cultural circumstances according to conventional wisdom, then yes, things are not going well and we have no reason to believe that they will improve. But if we evaluate things according to God's word and the history of God's providence, then things are not as they seem. When we are weakest, we are strongest. Could not be clearer in scripture. When we are persecuted, We are powerful. And that's the way I want to approach the text. This is the central meaning of the text. And we're just going to divide it in two ways. We're going to look at persecution and then revolution. Persecution, verse 1. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. So this is the first official introduction of Saul and the book of Acts. Um, And for all intents and purposes, we will be exploring his story going forward. Pretty much, it's going to be about him going forward. So let's make sure we know who this guy is. And I want to assume everybody knows who Saul is. Um, Saul, who will be predominantly known by his Greco-Roman name, um, Paul, 
was born in Tarsus. Tarsus was a very influential, highly educated city in Asia Minor, a part of um, the Roman Empire. Thus, he was born um, a Roman citizen, which is significant in that day. Um, As to his Jewish heritage, he was exceedingly devout, uh, referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a zealous Pharisee. And so you take his cultural influence and education and Roman citizenship combined with his uh, religious zeal and devotion, and it's no surprise that he was regarded as a highly, highly um, supreme, really, leader in the Jewish community. And perhaps nowhere do we see this leadership more than in the fact that he was the one looked upon to crush this newfound movement that is taking over Uh, Jerusalem taking over the Jewish world. And he was ruthless. There's no other way to read the passage. Look at it. And there arose in that day, so the day of Stephen's martyrdom ignited an entire movement of persecution, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So So the church scattered. The apostles felt like they needed to stay there in Jerusalem Um, for leadership purposes. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. So they're a scattered church. They're a church in mourning. But Saul was ravaging. Ravaging is, is, is a good attempt at the Greek there. The word is very strong, communicates utter destruction. Saul was determined to utterly destroy the early church. How so? It's really simple. Anyone who named Jesus as Lord was in trouble. Continue on. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The, it's the and women that is the scandal of that verse. Um, if you wanted to put an end to a movement in those days, typically you would take out the leadership. If it was a stronger movement, uh, you would take out the men. But Saul is dragging even the women off to prison. And that's not just for imprisonment, by the way. That is to take them to prison and demand they recant Jesus. If they refuse, their fate would be the fate of Stephen's. So this is Saul saying enough is enough with this Jesus thing. I am going to utterly destroy this movement before it can go any further. And it was seen that he has succeeded up until the point Uh, Christianity is a centralized revival growing by the thousands literally in Jerusalem, which is the center of religious and cultural influence in the day. And what's even more significant is that the establishment can't control it or stop it. Uh, This is why there was such alarm within Jewish leadership because the movement feels out of control, feels like it's on the tipping point of taking over So it would seem that Paul has saved the day, at least from the perspective of the Jewish leadership. House to house, everyone arrested. Those who weren't arrested had to flee the city. And so it's now a scattered, persecuted minority rather than a centralized majority of power. Now it is spread throughout the less influential regions of society. And if you're reading the story of Acts... It would seem that this is an awful development for the early church. And certainly, if you were there, if you were in it, you would literally be thinking, this is worst case scenario. It doesn't get worse than this. And perhaps in the back of your mind, you were even thinking, "Mm, maybe it's over. 
had a good run of it, seemed like the Lord was doing something, but it's over. We have to appreciate how bad it was in order to appreciate what happens next. Christianity was infused with a, one could only say, eschatological optimism right now. Um, it, 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 it was taking over Jerusalem. It was threatening the gatekeepers of cultural power akin to taking over Washington, D.C. in our day. But Saul has managed to annihilate that development, disperse the movement as a persecuted minority, spread throughout the fringes of society, away from all power and influence. According to worldly convention, this is not a good development. But things are not as they seem. Let's watch the Lord do what he loves to do, what he does throughout all of Scripture, what he has done throughout all of history. We've seen persecution. Let's see it now lead to revolution. Look at verse 4, the contrast. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now that seemingly innocuous verse is actually massively significant Like I said, up until this point, Christianity was a centralized movement growing in strength and influence in the center of religious power. It would seem to us that that would be a good thing. That's what you want, right? Take over Jerusalem. But in reality, what the movement needed was to be dispersed. And so what happens is that Saul, the enemy of the church, has unwittingly released the church upon the ancient world. In my studies of the passage, I was just so struck by the casual contrast between verses 3 and 4. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then without missing a beat, as if that's no problem at all, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. As if to say, no big deal. Saul ravages the church. The church it spreads out and keeps preaching the word. It's almost, it's almost callous, not acknowledging the severity of the suffering that's taking place. This is bad stuff. Men and women dragged to prison to renounce the faith or be executed. Those not imprisoned have to leave the city in a hurry, leaving home, possessions, friends, perhaps even family behind in order to escape the persecution. This is horrendous stuff. But the way Luke tells it, it's almost as if he sees no problem here. And the point is that what seems to us to be worst-case scenario is in reality being used by God's providence to bring about his purposes. God is not panicked in the least because of Saul. Saul, it seems, is simply doing the Lord's bidding. And if your theology can't make sense of that, then you're going to have a hard time reading the Bible because it's full of it. These types of surprising developments are all over it. Time and time again in Scripture, worst-case scenarios yield God's greatest purposes. You meant it for evil, says Joseph to his brothers who sold him into slavery. God meant it for good. Both of those can be true. Both of those are true. Both means you meant evil, God meant good. Both of those can simultaneously coexist without any indictment upon God's sovereignty, his goodness, his providence. And this is just another example. Saul meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And the good is that the gospel is no longer contained, but is spreading unimpeded throughout the ancient world. 
Luke focuses in on one such case to show us the amazing fruit that has come from the persecution. Look at verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, something enormous just happened there in the development of church history. But if we're not familiar with context, we will miss it. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Jews hated Samaritans. I am not going to take the time to get into the history behind that hatred, but it was a malicious divide. And what we have to understand is that up until this point in Acts, Christianity is a Jewish revolution, a Jewish movement. Revival has taken place in Jerusalem. It is Jews who are being converted. And what it seems to be at this point of the story is a Jewish messianic triumph. Jews are discovering that Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead, is the Messiah and that he is ushering in their long-awaited messianic moment that is destined to yield Jewish victory over all enemies. And so the assumption was that Christianity, Christ, means Messiah. So this movement that's risen out of Jesus the Christ would take over Jerusalem and then from there, under the banner of their triumphant Christ, would launch the campaign of Israel's domination. And first up would be those dreadful neighbors, the Samaritans. That line of thinking is far more dangerous than Saul's persecution. Let me state that again because it is so pertinent to where we are. The line of thinking that Christianity's success follows the predictable patterns of worldly power and domination was and is far more dangerous to the Christian movement than any threat of persecution. And without Saul's persecution that forced the dispersion of the early church, Christianity would have turned into a Jewish nationalist movement. But the risen Jesus himself said, At the beginning of Acts, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was never about world domination. It was about world redemption. And if it takes persecution to make that happen, then so be it. Let's watch it take place. Verse 6. Crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, if you remember from all of our stuff from Acts, don't get hung up on the sensational stuff that is unique to Acts. What this is meant to be is to mirror the ministry of Jesus himself. Wherever he went, this stuff happened. And the point we are supposed to see is that Jesus has come to town. Not to destroy the Samaritans, but to heal them. And then look at this amazing conclusion in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. That is so poignant. There was much suffering in the church. That verse where they are lamenting Stephen's death. There's much suffering, there's much sorrow, there's much mourning in the church and in the city of Jerusalem, but it yielded much joy in the Samaritan city. And so the passage presses in on us with one very challenging question, and it is challenging. Was it worth it? It could not be clear that according to the providence of God, 
this development was a good thing. Are we willing to agree with that? Is persecution that yields gospel advancement, is our suffering that brings joy to the city, even the city of those we are accustomed to, being, to viewing as enemies, is that something we can embrace and even bless as a good thing? This is where things start to get real, friends, and it'll be like this the rest of Acts. Up until the point in Acts, it's, it's been all good stuff. Good stuff. Pentecost, uh, revivals, healings, conversion. Then Stephen gets stoned, but you know, there's going to be some casualties at the top of leadership, I suppose. But then in just eight verses here, the entire story just gets thrown into disarray, and none are exempt. Everyone who follows Jesus is now facing the cost. None are exempt. And so the rubber meets the road for all of us. All of us who are now staring down this question, is the Lord's revolution worth the world's persecution? I want to press in on that application question in light of our cultural moment. This is why I'm Thankful to preach this now where we are, which we, we, we weren't there. At least we didn't see that we were there six months ago. What does the future of Christianity hold for us culturally? As I've, I have already stated, one thing the past five months has revealed is that cultural Christianity itself is no more or is it on life support. We inhabit a post-Christian society. No, we do not have Saul ravaging the church, but it doesn't take a sociologist to see that the church and our culture is in serious crisis. This movement we love is not doing well. Granted, it is more subtle, nonviolent, but we are being ravished, to use the language of the text. And we might be tempted to run to paranoia, despondency, fear, Anger, rage. In fact, I don't think we might be tempted. It seems to me that's where we're going. It seems to me everyone is freaking out as we see and experience the transition from a moral majority to a persecuted minority. But how many times must God show us in Scripture that a persecuted minority is more powerful than a powerful majority before we start to believe him. What if this is precisely what American Christianity needed? We don't think we need it. The early church didn't think they needed it, but it's what they needed. What if this is what we needed? What if like the early church needed to be divested of worldly power and worldly power paradigms and the threat of Jewish nationalism? What if the American church needs to be divested of worldly power and worldly paradigms and the threat of American nationalism? What if our obsession with political power and influence has failed us? What if that's a bad strategy? What if the Lord is forcing us to reimagine what influence looks like as an exilic people? What if on the other side of this persecution is Christianity's revolution? She thinks so. 
a revolution that we wrongly have assumed can be coerced by power, but in reality is born out of weakness and the unconventional weapons of word, sacrament, prayer, service, and love. Friends, we don't have to ask what if because God has answered that question time and time and time again, both in Scripture and in history. We don't have to wonder whether God blesses weakness, whether just when things seem worse, it turns out to yield God's purposes. We don't have to wonder. That's what he does. Instead, we must fight to believe. We must repudiate this pervasive paranoia and despondency that arrogantly trusts circumstances and our interpretation of circumstances more than God's sovereignty. Do you actually think that God is freaking out right now? And I'll get even more specific and admittedly controversial um, because I, if I were to boil it all down, I, I, I think our culture is such that it, it comes down to this. Do you actually think that God is freaking out over Donald Trump? Mention that name in a sermon. I know the emails are coming. But what this shows me is that that name holds far too preeminence in our hearts right now. And let me explain. To me, the most powerful man in our country has been the central focus of Christian angst in two ways. Some Christians love him and fear that his defeat will be the final loss of Christian influence in America. Some Christians loathe him and fear that his reelection would be the final loss of Christian witness and identity in America. But ironically, those who love him and those who loathe him are strange bedfellows in the same fallacy conceding way too much significance to the President of the United States and worldly power. Both sides need to remember that Trump is nothing. Historically speaking, he, his life is like yours, a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. The success of the gospel and the triumph of the kingdom will be just fine whether he is defeated or reelected. And so the admonition is the same, whether you fear his defeat or his reelection and what that means for our country, the, the, it's the same, it's same admonition. Dethrone this man in your hearts from a, from a position of prominence that does not belong to him. This passage has a demand for us in this moment of cultural crisis. Fear not whatever circumstances befall us. Recognize everything is fine and will be fine. Now just go be Philip and live the kingdom and preach the gospel in exile. Trusting that that unseen labor is far more powerful than any paradigm of worldly power. Now, it's one thing to say that in a sermon. It's another thing to buy into it and live it out. It goes against every instinct we have. We are conditioned to prioritize power over persecution, strength over weakness, majority influence over fringe faithfulness. This is how our world works. But the point is that when you choose to follow Jesus, you choose to embrace a different world, a world that subverts conventionality, by, by an inverse ambition and strategy, a world established by a cross which brought victory via defeat, success via surrender, revolution via persecution. We are not a people of worldly clout. 
We are a people of a wooden cross. When I preached this passage five months ago, I could not imagine what was before us, and I have no idea what is before us in the months to come. But children of God, do not fear what is before us. Rather, hold fast, move forward, trusting that like our Savior himself has demonstrated, when we are weak, we are strong. When persecution comes, revolution is soon to follow. Let me pray. Give us eyes of faith, not of sight. Trusting your promises more than circumstances. We admit, Lord, we are so tempted to run to despair. No matter what our interpretation of developments are, no matter what party of power we align with, no matter what our perspective is, all of us right now are tempted to run to despair. Show us, Spirit, that that is not a disposition of the people of a risen Savior. And send us forth in the surety of your promise. Through the resurrected Christ we pray. Amen.